Hello, everyone out there. Welcome, welcome. You're watching Believe. It is a lovely day in Miami Beach, Florida. I'm Vanessa. Um, here at Believe, we um, are a conscious news company, and we focus on bringing you guys stories evolving around money and business, health and wellness, true success, our universe, and world news. You can check us out at believe.love or on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash believe loves you. Our Apple users believe iTunes.com and for Android users believe Android.com. All right, let's get right into it. On our first topic today, um, we'll be discussing under money and business, seven reasons why spending money on experiences can make you happier. Um, as many of us know, millennials are now the largest age demographic um, in the world. Though the rise of millennial mindset has come with many interesting details, one of the most interesting um, I'd like to mention or point out today is how we prefer to spend our money on experiences rather than stuff. Um, millennials aren't spending our money on cars, TVs, and wash it, watches. Taylor, um, Taylor Smith, CEO and co-founder of Blueboard, she told CNBC, we're renting scooters and touring Vietnam, rocking out music festivals, or hiking Machu Picchu. The statement was backed up by a study conducted by the Harris Group that found out that 72% of millennials prefer to spend more money on experiences rather than just material uh, um, items. The thing is, though, this isn't exactly specific to millennials. Researchers have been studying how people could allocate their money to make themselves happier. The assumption had been that spending money on material possessions would increase happiness because possessions last longer than an experience. A 20-year study by Dr. Thomas Gilovich, he's a psychology professor at Cornell University, he found the opposite to be true. Dr. Gilovich is just one of several researchers who believe in the Easterlin paradox. And what that is, it's a phenomenon simply states that after, a after our basic needs are met, money will only increase happiness to a certain point. And that'll be actually for the following seven reasons. One being that happiness over material items, um, it quickly fades. It doesn't last long. One of the enemies of happiness is adaptation, says Dr. Golovich, or Gilovich, I'm sorry. We buy things to make us happy and we succeed, but only for a while. New things are exciting to us at first, but then we adapt to them. Psychologists call this the hedonic ad adaptation. In other words, the excitement of that new car or that iPhone or their furniture set, it'll quickly fade into the background as they become a part of your daily life. Um, experience those, experiences though, like traveling, attending an art exhibit, or just trying out a new restaurant or trying new foods, they become a part of our identity. And it kind of brings us a greater satisfaction than just having an object. Two, experiences define your purpose and your passions. Your daily activities should be guided and influenced by your purpose and your passions, not your material possessions. Think of it this way. Let's say that your favorite musician is the late, great um, artist formerly known as Prince. <laughs> just throwing out a random one. Even though you have, you know, all of his albums, you have, you know, some items like T-shirts and other posters and memorabilia, do all of those possessions top actually seeing him dance and rock out on stage? Probably not, right? 
And even still, I'm pretty sure if someone like offered you a front row ticket, of course, you know, a few years ago or something, a front row ticket to see him in concert, you know, in exchange for all your memorabilia, you probably would do that. I would just give up all of the stuff to go see him and actually experience it. <clears throat> so number three would be possessions don't contribute to social relationships. We consume experiences directly with other people, says Gilovich. And after they're gone, they're part of the stories that we tell to one another. Do you bond more with other people when discussing material possessions or experiences? Let's think back to Prince again. When you run into another fan and you guys, you know, you have this certain bond or this connection, you guys, you know, swap stories and you're talking about everything, talk about his music, you talk about concerts that maybe you've attended or, you know, how his music has positively impacted your life. Um, that seems like a more in-depth and interesting conversation opposed to just talking about your car or your iPhone or, you know, the Prince t-shirts that you have. Social relationship expert John Hall, author of the book Top of Mind, once said that relationships are like ketchup. Only you can figure out if you need to have it on your burger or not. And we can all relate to wanting or not wanting that, right? So maybe that's what we need to look at it is that, you know, it's about building a social relationship and relationships are like ketchup. Only you are really going to know what you want. Number four, moments are more memorable. While experiences are designed to be fleeting, they provide high levels of arousal and memorability. Thanks to anticipation. Back to Prince again. You hear he's coming to town, right? Um, so you mark your calendar, not only for the date of the show, but also when, you know, tickets go on sale so that you can get those tickets. You're anticipating purchasing the tickets and then attending the show after you've secured your seats. Um, so going to the show is an entire experience. It's not just one single moment. It's all of those anticipated moments. Five, experiences introduce you to a whole new world. Unlike stuff, experiences introduce you to just a new perspective, life lessons, and just the importance of gratitude at the end of the day. Take traveling, for example. If you live in New York City and then you, you know, you take a little vacation or you travel to West Virginia, you know, you're, you're going to realize the pros and cons of living in the Big Apple. And even though there's culture and there's public transportation and plenty to do in West Virginia, that weekend trip south may made you appreciate nature or the quiet and the beauty of clear and starry nights. It's just a different experience. And you may realize, <clears throat> you may realize and come to understand cultural differences. Even if you don't agree with all of the things that, you know, you'll be experiencing, at least you've walked away learning something new. And, you know, maybe you'll be a little bit more thoughtful, compassionate, humble, or even grateful. <clears throat> Number six reason why um, you want to spend money on experiences. Number six is stuffication. <laughs> Do you have a garage full of stuff, right? Maybe like some old VHSs from the 90s or kid toys or, you know, old collectibles. You might have a closet full of junk too. That buildup of junk that um, you'll never use, it can actually do harm to your mental health. Ever physically just physically felt better after, you know, walking into a clean room or after maybe cleaning your home? It's because when our homes are filled with junk and clutter, it increases our levels of stress. 
So cleaning up all of that material stuff will actually help you out mentally in the long run. And lastly, number seven, it's no fun keeping up with the Joneses. The tendency of keeping up with the Joneses tends to be more pronounced for material goods than for experiential uh, purchases, says Gilovich. This is because according to research from Ryan Howell and Graham Hill, it's easier to feature, compare material goods than experiences. Of course, it's easier for them to sell these materials than to, you know, sell us experiences. In other words, spending money on experiences can decrease this envious behavior, which means that we'll be happier, healthier in the end. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, seven reasons why you should be spending your money on experiences rather than the material stuff. We're going to move to a brief topic here on world news. Um, Americans are feeling better about their own lives than they have ever in over a decade, according to Rasmussen's most recent report. They surveyed a thousand American adults. It was conducted on July 16th and 17th of this year by Rasmussen Reports. The survey says 74% of American adults rate their life as good or excellent, the highest level of satisfaction ever recorded by the pollsters. This is up from 61% in 2010 and 67% in 2014, and just 5% rate their life as poor. Most of these uh, surveyed, most of those who had uh, been surveyed said that their first 40 years of life were the best, but it was actually unmarried adults who were more positive about their lives overall. I think it's great news when people are happy and acknowledging that they're happy. I think that's important too. As many of us know that there's still so much work to do on, you know, with this country, individually and collectively, all of us as a human race, I mean. But it's good that, you know, what seems like the majority of people are welcoming positivity and happiness into their lives. So that's amazing, right? You can check this out at the Washington um, examiner.com or, you know, Rasmussen reports their website. Americans have never felt better. 74, 74%, I'm sorry, are very, very happy. That's pretty cool. All right, we're going to move along to true success. We'll be talking about five tips to inspire an innovative mind. As entrepreneurs, inventors, innovators, we know that bringing up ideas, bringing ideas to life, it's an amazing experience. One that we, we live for, right? One that we live for. Although many people think big ideas just kind of pop into our heads perfectly and seemingly out of nowhere, innovators, we would know, you know, we would tell you that it takes a lot of work, right? It's really not that simple and it requires a lot. So whether you're, you know, just carving your path to entrepreneurship or, you know, you've had yourself in an innovation rut, you're just kind of in a weird place right now. These five tips can definitely help you develop an innovative mindset um, and get your mental gears grinding. Number one is to let your problem be your North Star. Entrepreneurs and, um, and inventors are result focused. And we know that every solution starts with a problem. It's the problem that should guide you to those right answers. The best innovators will define their problems clearly and thoroughly before they even begin thinking about how to tackle them. An innovator needs to learn how to develop 
unambiguous, measurable, and actionable problem statements. Without one, your starting point is flimsy, if existent at all. So you definitely want to focus on your problems and understand um, your problems to solve. You want to always have problems to solve at all times. You want to always be thinking about what's the next problem that I need to solve? What's the next thing that I need to take care of? So you want to have all of that already, you know, concisely put together and, you know, as full and detailed as possible. So when you do get to the point that you have to, you know, attack it, you have all the information already and you're not stressing yourself out, running around trying to figure out how to solve the problem. Number two is don't force inspiration. Prepare for it. Inventors know that you can't plan for your next big idea or your creative task or your creative streak, I should say. Because you never know when inspiration is going to hit you. So you have to be ready when it does. Your problem statements come into play here from number one. Make it a habit to always have problem to solve, problems to solve on your mind. Inspiration won't catch you off guard if you're prepared. Number three is know what you're listening for. You already know to listen, right? But aimlessly listening rarely yields results. Learn how to listen with intent. The world is full of talkers, full, full, full of talkers. At the risk of sounding a bit like some of these other seminars, lectures, and speeches, make sure that your ear is tuned to pick up when someone is really ready to move forward with that idea. So always be listening and know what you're listening for. Four is to let your tasks be complementary, not competing. Do not compete with your tasks. And I'm going to explain. Being an innovator or an inventor, an entrepreneur, it's demanding. It requires a lot of attention, a lot of different details that uh, you need to get through. And being both, um, being both of them definitely requires a lot of time and attention. It's not easy, but it definitely shouldn't be overwhelming as well. Aim to blend your to-do lists and your roles and make them mutually supportive. People often think of things in separate, like easily defined categories, and that's not always the case. Ideas and projects, they can be cross-pollinated because they benefit from interactions with each other. But you want to find those. The way, <clears throat> that way, I'm sorry, success in one area will definitely benefit another. When you're working on one part of the project, you're already figuring out, you know, solutions for another one. So try to, you know, merge your to-do list together and figure out ways to um, bring certain tasks together if you can. Number five, and our last tip here, is don't get lazy or comfortable. Innovation, it requires agility and you can't allow yourself to become complacent at all. You know, if you want to remain agile, you need to think big to innovate, right? You need to think big, but you can't afford to ignore the details either. You have to still pay attention to the little things. The moment you find yourself saying, no worries, users aren't going to see that or, you know, stuff like that, you've opted into laziness. You've taken the easy way out. You need to be prepared to work towards your best ideas and give it your all 100%, not just the first one that excites you. Act as your own devil's advocate and see your thoughts as your opponents might. Literally, look at them from another position. Look at them from a different perspective. When you let go of laziness and complacency, innovation becomes a lot more lightweight and easier to deal with. Sporadic inspiration is only a small part of innovation. The rest requires the innovator's work 
and it's your mindset that fuels your efforts. Whether you're an innovator, an entrepreneur, or both, developing an innovation mindset should be your first step. So there you guys have it. Five tips for inspiring an innovative mind. And we are going to move over now to health and wellness. We're going to be talking about ayahuasca and whether it can stimulate new brain cells, new brain cells. I'm sorry. Scientific thought up until this point on the brain development and damage, it's long been said that the brain stops creating new neurons and new brain cells once, you know, a human has entered adulthood. But according to that understanding, when our existing brain cells are damaged or die, they're gone forever and they're irreplaceable. Thankfully, though, however, scientists recently discovered a process called neurogenesis or the growth and development of uh, nervous tissue. This means that the creation of new neurons is in fact possible, occurring in an area of the brain known as the hippocampus, which we know is actually dedicated to memory, learning, language. And now there are ways to increase the brain's rate of neurogenesis. As a recent study conducted by the Beckley Sandpo Research Program and published in the journal Scientific Reports has revealed certain com compounds presented in ayahuasca or compounds that are present, I'm sorry, in ayahuasca, a powerful psychedelic plant medicine can actually stimulate the birth of new brain cells. Let's get into the research. Presented at the Interdisciplinary Conference on Psychedelic Research in 2016, it was the first physical evidence that components of ayahuasca have these neurogenetic properties. Researchers placed the most prevalent alkaloids in ayahuasca, which is harmine and tetrahydroharmine, in a petri dish with hippocampal stem cells. And they saw that this greatly increased the rate at which these cells were able to develop into fully mature neurons. The addition of heramine and tetrahydroheramine to cultures containing neural stem cells dramatically increased their differentiation and maturation into neurons. They're making their way to testing this further, of course, on living animals, et cetera, and just going further into more testing. If we continue to get the same results, though, this would be huge. It would be, you know, a breakthrough in mental health care. And it definitely could represent the potential opportunity to not only treat neurodegenerative and psychiatric or psychiatric, I should say, disorders, but also it could redress brain damage caused by stroke and other and other dramas and traumas that, you know, that have been affecting the brain for, you know, centuries. It could really, really be helpful. You can actually go to beckleyfoundation.org. I'm actually going to pull it up right here so that uh, you guys can see it. And what you're looking at right here, what we're looking at here is a static picture of stem cells. This was taken after several days of treatment with different compounds. No neurons um, are present here. You can see in the little bottom, at the bottom left here, there's a key. So the blue dots are basically the stem, the stem cells that they put in here. So those are our stem cells. The green dots, which you see just a little bit here, but not really much, are those young neurons. That's what we're looking for. Basically, new cells that are being um, regenerated. They're just being, <clears throat> well, I guess I should say generated because they're actually completely new and they're being developed. 
um, in this case, this was saline that was used in this first picture. They did three different treatments, saline, which is water and salt, haramine, and then the tetrahydroharamine. So this one with the saline was added to the cell's culture. And you can see the stem cells in blue, like I mentioned, these stem cells were treated with saline for several days and they developed a few young neurons seen in green, right? So we're gonna move along here to the next one. This is with heramine. <clears throat> this after several days of treatment with the heramine, the stem cells are still present. You can see still some blue cells here, but you see a lot more green cells, which are your young neurons and a lot more red, which are mature neurons. And that's with the heramine. So that neurogenesis definitely worked. And lastly, this is with the tetrahydroheramine. That's in this last image. As you can see, an abundance of new young neurons with the stem cells, as well as some red ones here, some uh, mature, mature neurons, and of course, plenty of the original stem cells that they used. So that's just showing you guys a little bit about what, um, so I guess it kind of could kind of make a little more sense if you see what I'm talking about. And with all that, that study right there, it possibly proves that neurogenesis, you know, the creation of new neurons does in fact occur in the hippocampus and that um, ayahuasca can definitely, definitely assist with that process, which is very, very cool. You can find so much more research though um, on this beckleyfoundation.org, <clears throat> you can look into more research, collaborate, collaboration with Dr. Jody Reba at the St. Pooh Institute of Biomedical Research. They go into really great detail about the entire study, as well as ayahuasca stimulates the birth of new brain cells. That's the page that I had just showed you here, where you could see the actual cells and you can see the green neurons, which are the new young neurons and then the matured neurons, and you can see the process. So there you guys have it health and wellness, ayahuasca has amazing healing properties that is actually helping with, you know, new brain cells. It's helping with neurogenesis. Really cool. And for our final topic here, seven mind-altering facts about the Milky Way galaxy. According to the best estimate by astronomers around the world, there are at least 100 billion galaxies in the observable universe. Within these billions, if not trillions, of galaxies are billions, if not trillions, of stars. Quite mind-bending, isn't it? That's a lot of activity. It's literally beyond our ability to comprehend. So we're going to go over some just seven really, really cool facts here about the Milky Way. According to international scientists led by Professor Heidi Jo Newberg of Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, suggests that the Milky Way galaxy is at least 50% larger than what we had commonly believed it to be. 50% larger. Can you imagine? Based on new findings that reveal our galaxy is contoured into multiple concentric ripples, meaning the Milky Way galaxy, it's not 100,000 light years across, but at least 150,000 light years across. Number two, at the center of the galaxy is a giant black hole, which is billions of times as massive as the sun. 
Scientists believe that this black hole weighs as much as 4 million of our suns put together. Black holes are some of the strangest and most fascinating objects found in outer space, and scientists don't know what they are. The first black hole was discovered in 1971. Our galaxy is hurtling through space, spinning around a giant black hole, while our sun and solar system travel with it. The solar system is traveling at speeds of approximately 515,000 miles per hour. Even at that speed, our solar system would take about 230 million years to travel all the way around the galaxy. Number three, as mentioned in number two, our galaxy is hurling through the universe. And it's not only one. There are billions of galaxies out there all doing the same thing. The, this massive collection of stars is constantly crashing into one another. Number four, our galaxy is home to possibly a number of Earth-like planets. A few have already been discovered. A group of researchers from Australia and Denmark recently calculated that there are hundreds, there are hundreds of billions of Earth-like planets in the Milky Way. Using NASA data, astronomers have calculated for the first time that in our galaxy alone, there are at least 8.8 billion stars with Earth-sized planets in the habitable temperature zone. So, so crazy. That is a lot of stars. Five, apparently there is a strong possibility that the Milky Way and Andromeda galaxies will collide in about two billion years. That collision will last approximately five billion years. You can read upon this in the Milky Way, from volume, explore the universe, encyclopedic set. And number six, many scientists believe that the Milky Way is one of the oldest galaxies in the universe. Estimates place the formation of our galaxy at approximately 13.6 billion years ago. And the Big Bang was said to be or occur 13.7 billion years ago. And seven, our last topic here, Appro approximately 90% of the Milky Way is invisible. Stars and dust make up only 10% of the total mass of the galaxy. So where's the other 90%? Well, whatever it is, it does have a mass and it's what we recall, what, I'm sorry, what we refer to as dark matter. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm Vanessa. You, of course, are watching Believe. You can check us out at believe.love, uh, youtube.com forward slash believe loves you. Android users believe Android.com and for Apple users believe iTunes.com. Bye now.